Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, December 16, 2013. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are in the doctor's opinion on page Roman numeral XXVIII, the second paragraph, beginning with frothy emotional appeal. Today's readers are reading the OA 12 steps is Daiya, reading the OA 12 traditions is Rose, and reading the literature are Sally, Judy B., Chelsea, and Deborah. The reference number for Sunday, December 15th, is 5635. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Daiya to read the OA 12 steps. Uh, good morning. I'm Daiya, recovered compulsive Ovita from um, Illinois. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nan made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And step twelve, having had a spiritual Awakening as the results of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles 
in all our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Daya. I will now ask Rose to read the OA 12 Traditions. Thank you, Rebecca. The 12 Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Pass. Thank you, Rose. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the Big Book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today we resume our study of the Big Book in the doctor's opinion on page Roman numeral XXVIII, the second paragraph, beginning with Frothy Emotional Appeal. I will ask Sally to begin reading. 
Good morning, Vision, for you. Good morning, Rebecca. So Sally, a recovered compulsive overeater. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. As we begin reading this morning on this paragraph, Frothy Emotional Appeal, we have to be mindful that we just finished looking at a paragraph prior to this that again explained to us that we are, it begins with the allergy at the top of the paragraph, it talks of the phenomenon of craving, and it comes down to the fact that their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So in this paragraph prior to the frothy emotional appeal, we're looking at, again, an explanation, a reiteration that we have an allergy of our body. We have a phenomenon of craving, this mental, um, the, the greater mental aspect of our disease. And so when it tells us frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, it's a reminder to me that as much as I think that I have a good, strong sales pitch for Overeaters Anonymous, that I have a sales pitch that this program that we're working works because I've seen it by experience in my own life work. Ultimately, this program is not for people who need it. It's for people who want it. And then ultimately, this paragraph tells us that in nearly all cases, probably all cases, their ideals, the word ideals, uh, the big book dictionary tells us means goals, their, their goals, their aims, their models, their standards, an honored or worthy aim. So in nearly all cases, their ideals or, an, or their honored and worthy aim must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. And isn't that what we want? We want to live completely differently than how we were living when we were completely consumed with thoughts of food or in the food. Our minds were either, we were either busy about eating, busy about getting the food, or we were constantly thinking about where we were going to get our next meal or we were going to get our next binge. And now we have come to a place where we have grounded ourselves what a precious word, grounded in a power greater than ourselves. And that is how we recreate our lives. With that, I pass. Thank you, Sally. Would anyone like to share on this paragraph? I heard Barbara and Katie from Boston, and I know there were others. Kim? Yeah. Okay, Barbara. Thank you. Good morning. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And this paragraph, I feel, speaks to me in terms of the very foundation of my recovery and the message that I carry. Because although I share my experience and I tell my story, it is not about me. I mean, that's part of that ego that has to be deflated. That's part of my experience. But what I can do is I can point to, I can lead to. 
I can talk about the amazing grace, the power, whatever phrase a person needs to hear about a higher power um, that has saved my life. And then the practical program of action, the uh, the steps and the, and the structure of the program that helps me to accomplish that and maintain it. And I know that I've learned that, for me, by making mistakes. When I first came to OA many years ago, my higher power was my sponsor. My higher power was the group. And until, you know, I saw that my sponsor had clay feet and she was a human being and another compulsive overreader like me, I put too much of my dependence upon that sponsor. And when she went down, I went down. And when the group folded or there was so much controversy that just uh, I allowed it to rob me of serenity and recovery. And so it's very clear to me that, um, you know, I, I carry the message, but the message ultimately, as it says, that it must have depth and it must have weight. And that means that there's no human power, no sponsor alone, no group alone, no theory alone. It all must be grounded, as it says, in a power greater than greater than myself if there is going to be a new life. Uh, thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Barbara. Katie? Good morning, everyone. Happy Monday. Katie G. recovered from Boston. I'm grateful to hear this. Um, I love this line, Frothy Emotional Peel, because I didn't understand it for a very long time. And what were we talking about before? These, um, with As an addict, my reliance is upon things human. Their problems become pile up on them. They become astonishingly difficult to solve. And so I was um, brought into the college uh, guidance counselor and I was told that um, I was going to be sent home because I'd lost too much weight and I was too thin. And, um, you know, that although I wouldn't necessarily call that a frivolous message, it was an emotionally appealing message, right? Like, and it didn't have any, I didn't relate to it. It wasn't enough to get me to open my eyes to say, okay, well, I guess I need to recreate my life. I was like, you know what? I'm sorry you want to send me home. I'm not going home. That's not an option. Or my brother saying, you look like you're dead. You're too thin. Or, um, you know, other people um, saying, you know, you're you're really in trouble now um, and coming into the rooms and, um, you know, hearing some, some tools which are, are wonderful and, and slogans that I have used like don't eat no matter what, no matter what, don't eat. Great. Tell that to a to an anorexic, like I, I'm not going to eat, and um, when I and all there are, I am not mocking anything in this program at all. I, what I'm saying is, I didn't know how to. Um, I didn't. I, I was in such a bad way with the food. Um, I I couldn't. I couldn't do anything that was relying on human on human aid, right? Like as our previous speaker said, and when I went to a meeting where they were talking about the steps when they were talking about their addiction and they were talking about the solution and that and that in order to hold on to the solution for any amount of time I had to recreate my life and I didn't know how that was the problem is that I kept trying to recreate my own life and on my own I cannot recreate my life but they outlined a very clear plan um, that had nothing to do with getting my emotions going. It was just the facts, ma'am, nothing else. This is how you can recover. I started to feel like there was hope, and I started, and I, and I felt ready to uh, to move forward with the steps, and with that, I passed. Thank you, Katie. Kim. 
Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. And I want to compare that frothy emotional appeal to depth and weight. And, uh, you know, for years when I came into OA, I was taught this was a threefold disease, you know, physical, emotional, and spiritual. So when I read frothy emotional appeal, I first thought it meant it was all those times when I was in the food and I was begging God to get out, and I was trying to control my emotions. That's what I thought frothy emotional appeal was. It was me trying to address that emotional part of the disease I was taught. And we've been grounding in, in this chapter, that emotions have nothing to do with it. This is a twofold disease. It's allergy to the body, physical, obsession of the mind, mental. So frothy emotional appeal is talking about what non-compulsive overeaters tell us. Those that love us and care about us, our family members, our doctors, medical professionals, who are begging us to stop and don't understand us. And on page 20, we can hear what do those non-compulsive overeaters tell us? What are they begging us to do? It says on page 20 in that third paragraph, how many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he should stop for her sake. The doctor told him if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is all lit up again. That is frothy emotional appeal. Frothy emotional appeal was someone telling me, well, why don't you buy a pair of jeans in the size that you want to be and then you try them on every morning, and that will motivate you to lose weight. Why don't you put a picture of a supermodel that you like on your refrigerator, and that way when you go to the fridge, you're not going to open up the fridge because you're going to be motivated. Why don't you get a BMI chart, and you can chart your progress, and that will motivate you. That doesn't work for someone like me. So what is that message of depth and weight? What can I bring as a fellow compulsive overeater to someone who is suffering from this disease? I can tell them, I know what it's like to go through fast food um, drive-thru after drive-thru or ordering for, for imaginary people so that you can get more food and sit in that parking lot and binge. I know what it's like during the holidays to go to a holiday party and be sneaking food in your pockets and going in the bathroom and eating it. Or maybe you're able to white knuckle it. Maybe you're able to get through that party and the next day you go into the break room at work and you see the leftovers in the top of the trash can or maybe a little bit further in the trash can and you, pu- and you dig it out because you were so good by not binging yesterday. I know what it's like to, to order a birthday cake for some random name because you work on pick it up and go home and just eat that birthday cake. I know what it's like to get to the point where you don't buy shoes with shoelaces on them anymore because you can't lean over in order to tie your shoelaces but you have to only wear slip-ons. And you know what? I don't live that way anymore. And you know what? I don't struggle with that anymore. I am not, I don't have willpower to, to overcome the food. What I have is a connection with God so I no longer want that food. That is the difference between the frothy emotional appeal of those who do not have our disease and the depth and weight of the message of those who are fellow sufferers. With that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? This is Bella. Can I share? Go right ahead, Bella. 
Good morning, my name is Berena. I'm a thankful recover compulsive overreader. Thank you, Rebecca, for leading this meeting, and thank you very much, everybody that is on the line. I love this paragraph because it's a paragraph with hope. Uh, the message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people. Yes, there, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yes, there is a message, a very, very important message. What is the message? If they are to recreate their lives. Yes, I have, I have the power to, to change my life, to, to be able to live in a different life. And it's very interesting that before the program, I heard all the time, Bella, you don't have the willpower. Bella, you don't want to lose weight. You cannot lose weight. You don't have the willpower. And here in the program, it's a miracle. And thank God that, yes, I have the power. Now, what is the difference? Before I had the, I thought that I have the power to control, to, to, to drive my own life. No, this, I don't have the power. And now I got to know that I have power, a power for what? To choose, to do, to choose the right choice one day at a time. And my first choice is uh, to be grounded in a power greater than, my, than, than themselves. Yes, thank God. I know already and I accept and admit that I am human. I have my limitations and guess what? I learn to accept that I have my qualities. I have my special presence that God gave them special to me. Yes, I have qualities and with these qualities I have the willpower to choose, to choose the right choice one day at a time. And when I don't, I accept and admit that, yes, there is a power greater than myself. I don't have to prove my, smartne my smartness, my, my ability to know everything. This is when I have the willpower to recreate my life. Yes, it's in my hand with the help of God. It's not only me and myself and my power. It's my willingness to open the door to let God into my life. This is my willpower to recreate my life. Yes, thank you, God. I can change my life. I can recreate my life. And I want to recreate my life only with the help of God, only with to know by knowing they, that my disease is physical, emotional, and also spiritual. Yes, I want to accept the power greater than myself, the power of God. I want to let him, to let God into my life. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella. Would anyone else like to share on this? Helena in New Jersey. Monica. Helena, Leia, and then Monica. Helena, go ahead. Uh, good morning. Um, frothy emotional appeal. You know, I had frothy emotional appeal toward myself. I used to tell myself over and over, 
don't do it, don't do it. And then I would turn around and do it. And I do want to clarify that I have no willpower. I will never have willpower when it comes to food. Never, never, never. And that I don't need God's help. I need God to completely take over. If I hear that anyone struggling with food, anyone who is truly a compulsive overeater struggling with food, I say, you are defeated. We already know that food is stronger than you are. This is what the doctor's opinion is telling us. We have no willpower, frothy emotional peel, anything we can turn to, even asking God to help us. There has to be complete deflation and understanding that we have no willpower and never will when it comes to food. And then a spiritual solution can come forward because we know that we never again will be like other people when it comes to food. I think there are many of us who have come into the rooms with many problems and the, the um, doctor's opinion has classified and they're going to classify again. There are many of us who picked up the food and had a real problem with it and could not put it down, but with sufficient education or with sufficient uh, help from a church or those kind of things, we, or even just learning about principles, we could put the food down. But those of us who are hardcore are just dead and gone. And it's not a matter of opening the door. In some ways, yes, it's a matter of opening the door and asking God for help, but it's much more than that. It's complete deflation, and God has to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it says never do for ourselves. And yet here we are, recovered. What a miracle. Pass. Thank you, Helena. Leah? Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for your service. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Um, You know, don't eat. (laughs) Don't eat. You know, my parents told me that. Um, My spouse told me that. My employer told me that. My doctors told me that. Um, What the big book is stating here is that... um, you know, those pleas and and the pleadings that we get from family members and from friends and from employers and from physicians are not sufficient in separating uh, alcoholics from their bottle or me from the cellophane bags and bakery boxes. You know, don't eat is not a newsflash for someone like me. I have to compulsively overeat. Because I don't have a choice. You know, I have to compulsively overeat when I'm in uh, addiction because when the pain of living gets so bad, I don't know anything else that ever worked than compulsive overeating. And I will pursue that, even though intellectually I know I'm killing myself, but I will continue to seek that ease and comfort um, through self-destruction with my own fist. Uh, because that's that's the life I know. I can't differentiate the true from the false. That that is my life. That is my life. It says the message which can ho- can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. And that's exactly why um, recovered compulsive overeaters have a responsibility to come forward and and to share what it was like. Uh, what happened and what it's like today. You know, I was a compulsive overeater my entire life. 
I've had thousands of binges. I've eaten off the floor. I've eaten out of garbage cans. I've eaten uh, frozen food. I've eaten burnt food. I've stole food. I've lied about food. I've eaten, you know, until I was uh, anesthetized on, on the couch. Uh, I know what it's like to sit in a car in a dark pa- parking lot for hours and binge my brains out until my eyeballs hurt. I know what it's like to walk around in an obese body, you know. I, I know the medical consequences of being fat. I know the shame and humiliation of being fat. I also know the facets of anorexia and bulimia. I know that. And as a result of coming to Overeaters Anonymous and someone uh, taking the responsibility to crack open these pages and teach me these clear-cut, precise directions um, under their guidance of a, of a man who knew what he was talking about, I performed the requirements in this book, and I am very happy to announce that I have uh, not had to engage in any of those behaviors and not take a, a compulsive bite since January 19, 1987, and that is nothing less than a miracle. It says in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. This is not just about mere elimination about, of my binge foods. This is a recreation of my life. This has been a rebirth. And that is the secret of these 12 steps, that yes, indeed, it's possible to be able to effectuate such a dramatic change in personality and in character and in my values. And that is a result of these steps and and allowing God to do what I could not do for myself. And that's the message that has to come forward. And that's the message that holds depth and weight. This is not about some, you know, intellectual um, pursuit of who knows how to quote out of the text. This is about a life being changed. This is about, you know, coming here filled with fear, shame, guilt, and remorse. And, And because of those conditions, that always led me back to compulsively overeating. But this program of recovery and God has allowed such a change in my personality, um, such a change that it is sufficient to bring about recovery and to recreate my life. And that's exactly what is offered here in this program. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Monica. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And what can I say after that? Ditto, ditto, ditto. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. You know, all the all my years, 50-plus years of frothy emotional appeal didn't work whether it came from family, whether it came from my doctor, whether it came from myself, and it came from myself every day. I, it just didn't work. There was something wrong with me. And, but what did work? What does work? The message from, and, and on the, in the forward to the third edition, it says, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. 
That's the message that worked for me. When another compulsive overeater said to me, Monica, you're not alone. You have a disease. And there's a way out of this. I have been on this path before you. And God has helped me. I am not the person I used to be. And if you want this, you can have this too. It's here for you. And it's called working the steps one after the other, in order that they are written from 1 to 12. And when you reach 12, you will have a spiritual awakening. You will be changed. God will change your thinking, your attitude, and your behaviors. And I thought, wow, I want this. She's got a twinkle in her eye. She's got a smile on her face. There's something different about her. I sense this peace about this lady. I want this. And on page 84, it says, if you want this, these, these promises will always materialize if we work for them. So as one compulsive overeater to another compulsive overeater, it works. We have a solution. It's called working the steps, getting that, re- that relationship with God, and he can do for you what you have tried to do for years and decades. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Monica. This is Rebecca, and I'd like to share on this paragraph as well. Um, Frothy emotional appeal. I didn't realize what that meant until just now, and I looked up the word frothy in the big book dictionary. I was thinking, oh, it probably won't even be in there, but it is. And it means agitated, soft, trivial, insubstantial, frivolous, as Katie said, lighthearted in character or content, unsubstantial. And until just this morning, I didn't pick up on the meaning and the contrast between frosty emotional appeal and a message of depth and weight. So I'm thinking about all the times I joined a particular diet club and I'd be in those rooms with fellows who were trying to lose weight, some having success, some not, with a leader up in front of the room who was like a cheerleader, rah-rahing, you know, encouraging us with frothy emotional appeal. And these people were suffering from this, you know, many of them from the same problem I had of compulsive overeating, and um, we were using our own human willpower to... um, egg each other on and to, um, you know, people would clap when you'd stand up and say how much weight you lost. And, you know, it worked a little bit in terms of weight loss, but um, we were being taught that we could still eat all sorts of foods and we didn't know that we were allergic to some of those foods and that we were trying to, we were told that we could be moderate with any food, which you know, is frothy emotional appeal. Oh, you can eat anything, just, you know, write it down and count it. And um, that didn't work for me. It might have worked for some people, but it, and it worked for a little while, but I'd always gain the weight back and then some, and I could never stick with it. So fast forward to finally giving up the ghost, the frothy emotional appeal, and coming to these rooms to Overeaters Anonymous, and what a relief to find out that 
it's not me. I couldn't do it myself. No human power could do this. I had to turn to something greater than myself. And that and that I did because I heard about it from others who um, experienced it, who went through what I used to go through with food. And as a result, I was able to recreate my life with the help of God. And with that, I'll pass. Why don't we move on to the next paragraph with Judy B. Hi, Hello? Good morning. This is Judy B., recovered compulsive overeater from Massachusetts. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us for a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Here we clearly see um, Dr. Silksworth's dedication and um, striving and work uh, in this area uh, of his life. I mean, he worked diligently trying to help the alcoholic, and, and we can see that it was so very frustrating at times because he would he would work with them and they would leave the hospital and then they would come back even worse than they were before and over and over and over he saw this and what he was doing didn't seem to be making a difference with them and and of course you know he was discouraged by that and then he saw that uh, the men in this movement, the men who were working through the steps, could make a difference. He saw that one alcoholic could help another even more than he could. And he understood, he understood this disease. And uh, we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. I mean, this was the beginning of the movement. You know, here he saw men, alcoholic men, recovered alcoholic men, who were willing to put their own welfare aside and help others, to put others first. And he saw that this was working, that it made a difference. And um, it's just... You know, thank goodness, thank goodness that Dr. Silkworth found, you know, saw this and was able to um, support it. And, and really thank goodness that he, that he wrote this letter and that he was able to uh, be part of the big book and to show others that um, there is a solution to this disease 
and uh, and he defines the problem, and that that is what has made the difference for so many of us. Just beautiful, beautiful um, description of the beginning of what began to happen as one alcoholic began to help another. Dr. Silkworth was able to see this. But I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Judy B. Who would like to share on this paragraph? This is Paula Nash. I heard Paula and I think maybe Robin. Is that correct? Zaka. Um, I'm sorry. Try again. (laughs) Zaka. Zaka. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and this and Hannah. Okay, so did I hear Paula, Zaka, and Hannah? Yes. Yes. And was there anyone else? Okay, Paula, go ahead. Thank you, and <clears throat> thank you for your service, Rebecca. You know, we come here as as it begins. What a beginning! And the beginning is talking about endings. Stand with us a while on the firing line. What is a firing line? Death. Death. To see those about you fall. That's what they saw. And they said, see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. They too. You know, as a tornado touches down, watch tornado before. What it picks up along its path, darling. There it is, the wives, the children. We touch many lives. And we see here again, and I'm going to come right back to this, tragedies, that they are. But I want to come down to the end. Yet probably a beginning for many of us. For me it was. Because it says here, we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men in the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And what is that? Devotion to others or to humanity. The same men that were on the firing line, not only did they receive life, they give life. They give life to others. And it says here, in Mr. Webster's word, the opposite of selfishness. Now that's recovery, the opposite of selfishness. So then we see life and we see death all in the same paragraph and we see the transformation. We see the transformation of where they were to where they are. And thank you. That would be Paula. And I I pass. Thanks again. Thank you, Paula. Zaka, you're next. Hi, I'm Zaka. I'm a compulsive eater from Baltimore. And um, I stood on the firing line. (laughs) I stood there with the gun at my head, the gun of food, food addiction. And um, it was a tragedy because I was throwing my life away. I was throwing away all the blessings in my life. I had a good life. But I created a lot of problems (laughs) because of the food, and it was a tragedy. And my husband definitely was despairing and... um, he tried the frothy emotional peel for many years, and it certainly didn't work. And um, and it was a tragedy for my little children, too. 
Um, when I came into program, I had babies, and um, and I would do crazy things to them and crazy things to myself that affected them. And, um, you know, it was very difficult for them. I would I went to treatment centers. I left babies for a month at a time crying and begging for their mother because I had to be locked up. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't be a free person. Of course those things didn't work and um and the psychological effects from me leaving those babies still remain till today. I mean that's one of the consequences that I've had to live with that I I impacted other people's lives. It's it's very tragic. Um and you know, when someone is standing on the firing line when there's a gun at their head, there is absolutely nothing they can do. They are powerless. I was so powerless over food, over my addiction, and it had to be a power greater than myself to save me. That's the only thing that'll work. It's a miracle. You know, like you could you could try to uh appeal to the holder of the gun, please don't kill me, you know, I have a family, I have kids, da, da, da. If, if someone is intent on, you know, pulling that trigger, there's nothing that you could emotionally, you know, try, do to change their mind. And that was, that was it, you know. The reason why the idea that a power greater than myself was the only thing that could save me appealed to me was because I knew that was true. Like, I wasn't going to be able to push that gun away on my own. I wasn't able to deal with the food on my own. I knew that so clearly. I was so licked. I knew I could not do it. I had tried. I had tried every every uh, type of you know, rehabilitation, <laughs> tried everything, and um, nothing worked, and I really had given up because what was the point of trying so hard for so long and getting no results? You know, for most sane people, they'll just give up because why waste your energy? Um, And so for me, that idea when I came in and I was told that it was only God that was going to help me and relieve me of this insanity and and help me to live without thinking about food 24-7 and help me to recreate myself because even that I'm powerless over. Um, that just, that did appeal to me. That had the depth and the weight. That That was the only thing I knew that would help me. I needed a miracle. I needed, a miracle is when, we, um, when God acts in our lives in ways that are not in the course of nature, that don't seem normal, that doing things that you're not used to seeing, as opposed to acts of God that you see all the time. It's all acts of God. But, um, you know, I needed that, and, and God pulled me away from that firing line. And, you know, thank God, my life is no longer a tragedy. My, my husband is not despairing, and my children are good children and normal and wonderful um, and I'm not, you know, having all these crazy problems in my life that I created for myself as a result of putting food first instead of putting my family first or myself first or anything normal first. It was me and the food and 
just leave me alone so that I could be alone with my food. That'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Zaka. Hannah? This is I'm a recovered compulsive eater. Um, I'm really, I love that image of the firing line because especially right now I've been housebound a lot over the last few months for health problems and and I hadn't thought of this before but just now, but just hearing the line about the firing line, I think about the cabinet, my food cabinet, my pantry cabinet and Sometimes that has felt like the firing line, like it's just there calling me and and it's I'm I'm willing to call it miraculous because I know I could never have done this on my own willpower that I have maintained my abstinence through this period. Um, even though there are moments and, and they're mostly moments, not more than that, when I'm just I can hear the food calling me. Um, the the, uh, the other thing that really struck me that, that I just realized this morning, and, and I have read this, I've been using this book for many, many years, the big book, um, but that frothy emotional appeal, I always, I've always thought of that as something that other people say to me or it's you know, at this time of year, late, a little later in January, there are going to be all these billboards and advertisements for how to lose weight. Um, but this morning, listening, I just thought, you know, frothy emotional appeal is all the delusions, the fantasies I have about how I'm just going to get my food manageable by, and, and this is what I'll eat, um, and and I'll be fine. <laughs> Everything will be fine. And the, what what people told me when people said, this is life and death, that to me, that's what I clung to. And that's what really cuts through all my fantasies that, that if I just have the right silverware or the right dishes that look pretty or the right pots that... Um, then my food will be manageable. Um, so I'm just thank you so much, all the people who make this meeting happen, because it is really a God thing for me. Thanks, Pat. Thank you, Hannah. Would anyone else like to share on this? This program? is Sharon. May I share? Go ahead, Sharon. Oh, thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for your service, and thank you for everyone out on the line. Um, I've just been listening, and, you know, I just think of my own life, too, and, and um, you know, the impact that these had on my children and, and my husband's when I had one and um, just so many things. It just does permeate and affect every area of our lives and the lives of others. And... Um, for him to say, you know, being on that firing line with these uh, sick people over and over again, day in and day out, and trying to do everything medically and psychologically possible that they knew to do, and yet uh, none of it worked. Um, you know, I really appreciate when he says, and the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted 
and have encouraged this movement. We feel that after many years of experience that we have found nothing. You know, he doesn't say something or, or uh, something new. We found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement. And I looked up altruistic and it says unselfishly concerned for or devotion to the welfare of others. And we as alcoholics and compulsive overeaters have to accept what the big book says about we are self-centered, selfish and self-centered to the extreme. And so when we are given this gift and then God's power begins to work in us to uh, have this be our motive and our uh, mission to be unselfishly concerned for the person who's still sick and like someone else shared, it's not who, who needs it. I know a lot of people who, who in my mind and heart think, oh, they really need this. But we have to, by God's grace, reach that point uh, where he brings us to that point where we realize how desperately we need it. And then we're willing to go to any lengths under his direction and his power to be recovered. So I thank you. I thank everyone out on the line. Keep coming back. And uh, with that, I pass. Lois? Thank you, Sharon. Lois, go right ahead. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, everyone. This is Lois, recovered in Massachusetts. And I wanted to, uh, I have to comment, I feel, on, you know, the tragedies, the despair, the children, the wives, the husbands. And, you know, for me, I have my own story as well. And everyone, I'm sure, on the line is that is recovered you know, has their own story, too. It's it's in recovery that I was able to, and working through the steps, that, you know, God, higher power, gave me the the, the way, the way through to, to uh, see how my behavior had hurt others. You know, when I was into the food, of course, I thought I was, you know, the best thing that happened to anybody that in my life. I was I was perfect, and everything was everybody else's fault. And it's only through working these steps, the big book step study way, and and becoming recovered, being willing to do the work and to go to any lengths to to get well for me to get well, that you know I was able to see exactly what this disease had done to me. You know, I mean, I had never started off this way in life, but this is what it had done to me. And it's only through the um, God-given program of the 12 Steps that I have recovered and became recovered so that I can, beca- I can um, the, my primary purpose is to help others recover. And in doing so, by telling my story, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now, that's the only, that is the most uh, wonderful story that I can pass on to others because when one alcohol, I know for me, I, I, I had all kinds of people giving me ideas about what to do, you know, find a way to be abstinent, don't, don't eat no matter what, but it was only when I heard another alcoholic who was just like me and I knew her, just like Ebby and Bill, told, told me her story was I able to seek and do what she had done and to get what had happened to her as well. So it's only in this brilliant program, you know, that when I become recovered, you know, I, I, I seek to uh, be less selfish and to be there to help, 
to be of purpose to God and to others. And when I tell my story to another alcoholic or compulsive overeater, hopefully they will be able to hear that from the heart and from, they'll know that if they have the same disease as I do, that there is a, a, there is recovery, and, and it's only through working these 12 steps. And with that, I'm going to pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. Thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the Big Book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. Will Chelsea please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Yes, Rebecca. Good morning. Thank you for your service. This is Chelsea, Robert Compulsive Overeater. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great results and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.